did liberals ruin this country? Okay, fine, neoliberals. We're going to discuss Tom Hartman's here. He's the host of the Tom Hartman program, of course, and he's the author of the new book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. So, Tom, welcome. And uh, tell people what neoliberal is, because I don't think that everybody knows. And yeah. sometimes people get confused by it. Yeah. Hey, Jenk. Thanks so much for having me back on. Neoliberalism uh, was a political and economic philosophy that came out of a group of economists uh, in Europe. In, in Europe, liberal uh, economics is what here in America we would refer to as conservative economics or even libertarian e economics, small government. And uh, so neoliberalism was the new liberalism. They, they met in, in the 30s and 40s, in, um, uh, originally in Paris and then later in Switzerland, uh, Mont Pelerin, uh, after which the society is named. And we're trying to come up with a strategy to uh, harden democracies, European countries, so that they would never again flip into communism or fascism. Um, it hasn't quite worked out that way, but that was their idea. Yeah. And so... How did it go astray? Well, it, it was based on a on a phony baloney premise. I mean, the, the, it was a group of economists. And so, they, you know, this is kind of Abe Maslow's old saying, you know, when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, they assumed that economics was the key to everything. And so the primary assumption of neoliberalism, which we know in America as Reaganism or trickle-down economics or supply-side economics, the primary argument was that there's a billion decisions being made in the marketplace every single second. Right now, as we're speaking, there's probably a thousand people trying to decide which brand of orange juice to buy. And as a consequence of that, the market has so much data, so much intelligence, so much information that you know, no bureaucrat or, or government official could ever match it. And therefore, the marketplace should be setting the rules for itself and for government, uh, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. It's like saying that, you know, whichever football team wins the most games gets to decide, you know, next year how many players it has on the field. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, let's throw away the rule makers, you know, in this case, government. So there's a, a couple of main uh, pieces to it. The first um, is deregulation. Anything that interferes with the, the so-called magic marketplace, the free market, um, uh, has to be done away with. So deregulate all government protections. Milton Friedman in one of his books even argues that we shouldn't license doctors. Um, another is get rid of labor unions. Labor unions are another interference in the, in the free market, the proper functioning of the free market. Um, free trade is the extension of that, global free trade. Uh, corporations should be free to go anywhere in the world to get the cheapest labor they can find. And, uh, you know, it's all good. Um, and the social safety net, no more Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, close all the public schools. Um, you know, anything that is basically the government's doing, they view as a, as a distortion of the marketplace, privatize everything. And of course, because the biggest corporations and the richest billionaires have proven through the Darwinian process of getting that rich, that they are the brilliant, perfect people to run the marketplace, um, you, want, you want to eliminate taxes on them. And that's why, you know, the average billionaire in America is paying around a 3% income tax and the average uh, corporation in America is paying nothing. So, Tom, we, there's parts of this that uh, I don't know if we're going to dis even disagree on, but uh, and I'm, I'm, I want to get there. But there's two things I need, need to explain first. To, to the audience, guys, I, I think that we underestimate how confusing the word neoliberal is. Uh, as Tom just explained to you, it actually means conservative economics, okay, as we know it here in America. 
It's like in Sweden, uh, the Social Democrats are the left-wing party. The Sweden Democrats are the right-wing party. <laughs> it's very confusing, so we wanted to explain that. Okay, now, uh, Tom, I, I want to focus on the two things you said there and split them up, because there's actually two different things uh, that you just talked about. One is the market is going to be really good at, at setting a price, for example, and, and, and different parts of determining uh, factors in the economy, right? And the second part is, and that's why we shouldn't regulate it. But wait a minute, those two things are not at all logically connected. It is possible that the market could be excellent at setting a price, but it doesn't mean it doesn't need regulation. It does. In fact, even Adam Smith talked about that, and he's the, you know, the ideological godfather of capitalism. And he said, no, 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 you need regulations, otherwise capitalism won't work. Yeah, we're saying the same thing, Jenk. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I was characterizing the, 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 the premise of neoliberalism, uh, you know, which is that there shouldn't be any regulation. Um, you know, it should be laissez-faire capitalism, unregulated capitalism. And, you know, one of the things that we know is that unregulated capitalism does have a resting state. It does have a normal state. It's, it's been, you know, uh, Europe was run this way for a thousand years. Um, Charles Dickens wrote, you know, uh, Christmas carols, a story that everybody's familiar with. That's the world you end up with, with unregulated or neoliberal capitalism. You end up with, uh, you know, the top 1% who don't even appear in Dickens, in most of Dickens's books. They, they don't even appear in Christmas Carol. That's the, the royal family and the big land and factory owners. Then you have a very small middle class, typically three to 5%. That's, that's about the maximum size you get in a completely unregulated capitalist society. And that was Scrooge and Marley. They were small businessmen. They ran a little two-employee company. And then you've got the 95% who are the, the working poor, and uh, most of them are in debt throughout their whole entire lives. That's the state that capitalism will always drift back to lacking regulation. So if you want to have a middle class, like the one that Franklin Roosevelt created in the United States, first time in the history of the world, uh, that it was over 50% of the, of the citizens were in the middle class, you've got to change the rules of the game. You know, it's just like the NFL, you know, they want to have football be really exciting. So whichever team does the worst this year gets the first draft pick next year. You change the rules or you set up the rules of the game so it works for everybody. And, you know, unregulated capitalism doesn't work for everybody. It works for whoever has the most capital. Yeah. So on this, Tom and I are talking about the same exact thing. So uh, unregulated capitalism, neoliberalism uh, is is. You know, one way of putting it, the other way of putting it, it was what I call corporatism, right? Yeah. And, and and corporatism actually is not in favor of capitalism. Corporatism wants to end competition. Capitalism is about competition. And so, and and Tom, your sports analogy is perfect because if you don't, a regulation is the equivalent of referees in sports. And if you don't have refs, you can't have a game because everybody will break each other's jaw and then we'll be done, right? And, That's right. And, and that's exactly what's happening in, in this corporatist world. And to, to your point about the 3% and the 1% and the, and the rest of us, that's pretty much where we are now in America. We've got the top 1%, and then I would say the top 10% that are doing okay, and then 90% of us are in debt, can't recover from any kind of economic blow, et cetera. So we're almost at, at and then that's why they call it late-stage capitalism, right? But now I, I do want to challenge you on one thing. So, like for example, you has a, have as your uh, some of your top descriptions of neoliberalism: free trade, financial austerity, and deregulation. 
So deregulation is, in essence, what we've just been talking about this entire thing. Financial austerity, again, is very similar. That's putting all the costs on the middle class and the poor and letting the rich skate. But free trade, on the other hand, I think can work if we had a regulated economy. So is that a fair distinction? It is. And in fact, that's the call, one of the major calls to action of my book. Um, in 1791, when uh, uh, George Washington was president, he wanted to, uh, you know, America was a largely agricultural country at the time, more than 90% of the people who worked were farmers. And he wanted to build an industrial nation. So he turned to Alexander Hamilton and said, how do we do this? And so Hamilton looked at how the UK had done that, and it had done it based on a program that King Henry VII had started called the Tudor Plan, which had lifted England from being you know, mud roads and mud huts into being a major industrial power. And it, so Hamilton rolled this thing out in 1793. It was called his, initially it was called his Report on Manufacturers, but it was Hamilton's 11-point plan. He referred to it as the American Plan. And he said, you know, we have to engage in trade with the world, but we do it on our terms. Um, you know, we, we make it easy to export manufactured goods in the United States and easy to import raw materials into the United States. But we make it difficult to have foreign manufacturers compete with our manufacturers here. And we do that through tariffs and things like that. So setting rules for trade um, is a way to build a middle class. So, Tom, I've always wanted to ask someone uh, that has your breadth of knowledge on this. It, look, we did free trade wrong because we let the corporations write the trade agreements and they wrote it in their favor and against us and Chinese workers, by the way, and Vietnamese workers and all of them. Um, but is there a way that we could have done it right where the middle class did grow in China without hurting the American worker? It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, um, but... And this is one of the really fascinating things that I learned when I was doing the research on this book. Um, the United States adopted neoliberalism in 1981 with Reagan. Um, Russia adopted it in 1991. It was forced on them by the IMF and George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, there was a huge debate in China in in the late 80s. I, I lived in China for a month in, in uh, November of 86 when this debate was going on. And they were, you know, I mean, Mao was dead and the, and the, and the Cultural Revolution was a disaster. And there were these two factions within the Chinese government. One was saying, we need to try this neoliberalism thing that America and you know Russia hadn't started yet, but that America is doing. Yeah, and yeah, it didn't work out in Chile, but you know maybe we can make it work. And the other faction was saying, no, we need to imitate Alexander Hamilton's American plan. And we need to, we need to protect Chinese manufacturers and you know uh, discourage imports of American-made goods, but aggressively promote exports of Chinese goods to America. And uh, which was, you know, the Chinese version of what Hamilton prescribed for America that literally created, you know, this huge industrial power here in the United States. And so the Chinese adopted the American plan, Alexander Hamilton's American plan. And we adopted neoliberalism, which put us at a huge disadvantage and put them at a substantial, you know, big advantage. And that's how it worked out and why it worked out. If either of us were operating the exact same program, if they had adopted neoliberalism and us, or if we had held on to the Hamilton plan, then probably there would have been a slower growth of China and a less rapid destruction of the American middle class. But since then, we've seen 60,000 factories closed in the United States, 15 million jobs, according to federal government statistics, go away. 
and it's gutted the American middle class. We've gone from 65% of us in the middle class when Reagan came into office to, you know, fewer than 45% today. That's an absolute devastation on the middle class. Look, and, and history has the answers. That's why books like this are so important. So everybody check out The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. It's by Tom Hartman, uh, and uh, it is great. Uh, so, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me, Cenk. Hiba Mohaidin is going to join us, founder and director of Equitable Access. Uh, Hiba, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, uh, first of all, tell us what uh, Equitable Access is. Yeah. So, a little bit backstory. My um, my. So, okay. Oh, there's actually quite a bit of backstory. My um, my dad from Pakistan. For, oh, like when he was around my age, and he moved here for a lot of reasons, different reasons. But one of the reasons was healthcare. Um, you know, moving from from completely alone to his from his family um, promised you know ten years of extra life for children, and so healthcare was a huge aspect of that for him. So whenever there were a number of cases that came up challenging access to you know like eroding our healthcare system, challenging access to life saving medication, I was heartbroken. And so um, one of those medications was PrEP. So our um, equitable access came from that. And we're trying to fight for equal access to life-saving medicine, specifically PrEP, which prevents HIV. Okay. So now there's so many things that spring out of that, right? So uh, first of all, now uh, we've got crazy right-wingers saying that uh, we shouldn't, uh, we should not have healthcare uh, cover the HIV medicine anymore. Um, we thought we were done with this stage of America, but apparently we're not. And they're bringing that fight back. Uh, and um, and they say that's because uh, they think the gay lifestyle is immoral. So let's tackle that one first. And, I, and by the way, I love your story of like your dad wanting to extend your, literally your life by bringing you here. But little did he know that private health insurance would take over and destroy that. And now we're losing life expectancy in America. But uh, but I'm curious if you guys have dealt with that issue of some right-wingers now saying, no, uh, healthcare coverage should not in be include uh, uh, medication for HIV. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, really, what is surprising is that this issue is quite bipartisan. It's something that is like what we would say is like really common sense legislation. It's kind of one of those things I think even realize what's happening. And so it's it's common sense for a number of reasons. It literally prevents HIV. And um, we, you know, have for two decades, you know, presidents have promised over and over and over again that they would commit to ending the HIV epidemic. And it just hasn't happened. And this this bill is like, it's cheaper. It's cost effective. Obviously, it's um, a great event, the contraction of HIV. And it's also like equitable. So it's one of those things that weirdly enough is quite bipartisan and it's just like common sense legislation. And we're really hoping that, you know, like legislators can see that, like this isn't a partisan issue at all. It's really just ensuring people like equal access to life-saving medicine, you know? So uh, I'm curious, it's just a personal side note for a second. Uh, you're, I, you know, I don't, let me ask you about your dad. Did, you know, so you said part of the point was to extend life and stuff. Whether it's your dad, you, your family, um, are you guys just kind of a little bit disappointed in how it turned out? 
that we've got runaway corporatism here and corporations run the place and they do let us die for profit. I definitely think that it is um, something that is been an issue with, it seems like with this specific issue, it's a matter of people not paying attention, especially people who this would most affect. For example, a huge problem with like crap medication access is that people who need it aren't able, like don't even know that it exists. So like a huge part of our campaign is also like outreach, making people aware of it. So I'm, I feel, I'm not sure if it is uh, like which problem it is, but we're kind of trying to tackle like a lot of them at once. Yeah. Um, was it good at some time? Was it a mirage? Have things gotten worse? I definitely think that um, from the perspective of my, my own is that I have noticed how um, the eroding of the healthcare system specifically, I mean, that's what I, my focus is on is that you know, by preventing people from accessing medicine that can save their life, it has been an erosion. It's, it's um, a movement towards, so it's, it's a movement backwards, especially from, you know, something that is bipartisan. Everyone can agree that we need to end the HIV epidemic, and it's upsetting that no one is doing it. And we're really hoping that, you know, people will. Um, and, you know, it's, I definitely think that, especially in the regards of like healthcare, these kind of cases that um, are trying to take that medicine away is eroding our healthcare system, unfortunately. Okay, so Heba, you guys are, you have this change.org uh, petition, right? We'll put the link down below keep HIV pre uh, preventing uh, medicine free, right? So right now, what is the main issue in the law that is preventing that if, you know, just, and what can people do to help? Yeah, so the main issue are these cases that are um, all over the United States. And we are trying to codify what already exists. It's the status quo to cover medicine like PrEP that completely prevents the contraction of HIV. Um, so if you know there are lots of ways for people to get involved, you could um, you could sign our petition. That is step number one. And also feel free to reach out to us at our email, which is equi.accessgmail at gmail.com. Um, if you want to like learn more about how we're trying to ensure HIV preventing medication in the United States. And um who like you keep you said it a couple of times hey this is a bipartisan issue why wouldn't we want to keep people healthy etc okay generally i agree but in my experience republicans don't really care about anything like keeping people healthy helping people with hiv they used to uh, george uh, bush actually talked a lot about uh, HIV and actually did some, it was one of the few things he did well, and I gave him a lot of credit for it. He, he gave a lot of funding for HIV uh, prevention and, and care in Africa, uh, as well as here. And so credit where credit is due. But here, who are the bad guys? Uh, is, is someone trying to make it sure that the HIV medicine is not free? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who are using uh, scientifically inaccurate and kind of discriminatory beliefs to try to justify taking that medicine away. Um, and that's kind of the, like, thing that we are so um, fighting against that is because I think it's a matter of misinformation. If you look at the numbers, you know, it costs, um, it costs us like, it's way less, it costs uh, like $40 per month to provide PrEP to prevent the contraction of HIV. Uh, while it takes 
$1,800 a month to treat HIV. So it is so much cheaper to provide PrEP. Um, and like that is like the main, I think people assume that it's more expensive and it, it's cheaper, it's more efficient. And so people who are using like this information that is like objectively incorrect um, come around and are able to see that this is just objectively the best thing to do, but we don't have a lot of control on that. So, Heba, I don't know what your uh, political opinion on this is, uh, but it seems like if we had universal health care, like, for example, Medicare for all, you wouldn't have to fight each one of these battles. Oh, please don't let people die from HIV. Please don't let people die from cancer. Please don't do this. Don't do that. Or we're all kind of begging for our lives nonstop. I, I know this doesn't happen in other developed nations. They all have universal health care. None of them have to beg like this. Um, but... Um, I'm curious your take. Is that the, am I missing anything or is that the obvious answer here? If we went to universal healthcare, this wouldn't be an issue in the first place. You know, I am not sure. I have like talked to so many experts um, who really do understand the, like Medicare or the healthcare system and the infrastructure better than I do. Um, and so I'm not sure, but I do hope that uh, whatever is best for, um, you know, people in the United States, for all Americans, it, that, that is what happens. And I know that the first step in doing that, uh, especially for ending the HIV, HIV epidemic, would be providing PrEP medication. All right. Uh, everybody check out Equitable Access. Heba, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.